What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome back to another edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh. He's Josh. We got Jays jumpers, Jaron Jackson Jr.'s, John Ranch, Joe Johnson's, Ja Raps, of course. We've got Jays we got for days. Josh, how you doing? This was a fun conversation we're about to share. Absolutely. <laughs> this was this is one of those conversations that I that is so rapid fire and so you know, quick hitting, and we're getting through a lot of co- topics that I'm looking at the time that we've been recording. I'm like, man, we maybe we need to stretch this out a little bit more. It didn't end up being that, but it was definitely a a high energy conversation. Yes, that's a good way to put it. Yes, if if we can promise one thing about this, you will be entertained. Yes, if nothing else, Kendall Cal. That's who we have on the podcast today, Kendall. Former SB Nation contributor for the Baylor Bears page now writes extensively both football and basketball for Sikkim365.com. And he also wrote a book on the 2021 National Championship team called How They Drew It Up. Um, and a read that I'm probably going to pick up because I, yeah, based on the insight that he had during this podcast, it's got to be it's got to be a good read about that, about one of the teams that I am incredibly like Adam and on is one of just the best college basketball teams we've ever seen. Not just, not just recently. So, um, very much a, a good conversation with Kendall. Absolutely. Let's go chat with Kendall Cowett, Sikkim 365 author of the 2021 Baylor national championship team book. Joining us now is Kendall Cowett to talk Baylor and the big 12. Kendall, how you doing? Thanks so much for taking the time. Uh, doing well. Happy to be on with the Joshes. <laughs> Thank you very much. I think you're the first person that's ever referred to us on the podcast that way. So you made a little bit of history. We appreciate it. <laughs> Before we get into this season in particular and kind of set the stage, we also wanted to ask quickly, you wrote a book. It's called How They Drew It Up about that Baylor National Championship team. What was that experience like for you and kind of how did it further inform, change the way you kind of view this this Baylor program as you now continue to see Scott Drew have success and kind of see the other side of what happens after you win a national championship? Uh, yep, so it was a really fun uh, process, Josh. It was during the COVID season, so not a lot going on some nights, not a lot going on in my life, maybe a lot of nights, but particularly during that run. And so I got the opportunity to, you know, Zoom press conferences. They'd have one a week with the team. Uh, they'd have one after every game got to interview just about every player and write a profile on them. And then during the book process, got pretty close to one of the assistant coaches on the team, a few of the GAs. So you kind of get the nitty gritty of what goes on during the season. What do they worry about? So a little bit more behind the curtains than you might get normally. So I loved the process. One of the best times in my life and one of the happiest times covering those 2021 bears and then writing the book about them. What was the, you know, we did get conserved as a as a sneak peek of, of what may what might be in the book what's one of the the coolest things that you learned uh throughout the duration of your writing process yep uh so josh i think what i learned during the process uh was kind of the mutual that season the mutual respect baylor and gonzaga really had for each other all year that year it was pretty clear most of the year it was 1a 1b baylor gonzaga a few fools, I think, at the end of the year were like, oh, is Illinois for real? And then Loyola, you know, housed them in the round of 32. But it was pretty clear all year, Baylor, Gonzaga were the two teams. And just that mutual respect they had for each other. I had talked to John Jacobs, who's now Baylor's associate head coach, along with Al Brooks, before the original Baylor-Gonzaga game that was scheduled for that December. 
Illinois had, you know, pretty strict COVID rules. And when one guy tested positive, game was off. And so in preparation for that game, I talked to Jacobs and he was just like, when we played Gonzaga, we were going to front the post. We were going to make them beat us. We were going to say anybody but Drew Timmy is going to beat us. And then game comes four months later. If they do that exact same strategy, roll it out, it works well. So I think knowing going in is what Baylor's going to do was a pretty cool part of the book. And then making sure when I wrote previews, hey, don't tip my hand. I mean, I assume what the heck's Mark View going to do, read me. But I just <laughs> wanted to make sure I didn't tip anything before that game. Sure. Yeah, definitely. And going into sort of this season and, and looking at this Baylor team, last year was sort of strange. You're coming off a national championship. You're sort of reworking some things. And then there are all of these injuries. And it was just sort of a strange season, I feel like, for Baylor. So now that you've had some time to reflect, what do you make of last season and kind of what it might tell you about this team? Of course, there are some new pieces coming in we're going to get to, but sort of what this season might look like and what you feel like this team learned from last year. If not for the original COVID year, it really would have been the ultimate what-if season. Jonathan Chamba-Chachua doesn't play the final five Big 12 games, still wins co-Big 12 Defensive Player of the Year. That's how dominant he was. So without him, not quite the same team. James Akinjo injures his tailbone, shoots 30% from three on the season when he was over 40% for most of the year. And then Adam Flagler is battling a knee injury. And so that Baylor team, kind of the elite level they thought they could be, didn't quite hit it, and they were into North Carolina at the exact wrong time. So really a question about him at that level. But I think the benefit for them is Adam Flagler worked all summer to kind of train his body, spent some time with Jared Butler in Houston. I think that development bodes well for Baylor because he's likely to be the point guard for most of the season. So hopefully the injuries end up being a blessing in disguise for what last year's Baylor team couldn't do. It makes it more likely that with LJ Cryer back from injury, Adam Flagler there, and then maybe John gets healthy by the end of the year, they can do what they did two years ago and what they weren't able to do last year. Do you think we've gotten to the point with, with Baylor that we are at with some of the, the more traditional blue bloods where the expectation going into the season is just kind of on a different level. Like if there's any way that you can suggest that Kansas or Kentucky or North Carolina or Duke is going to have a special season, that typically is the, the narrative going into this season. And then everybody else is kind of on the fringe and then, then the really special seasons, right? They're considered title contenders. But at this point, do you think Scott Drew has gotten the program to the point where the default almost is Baylor's going to be a team that has a chance to be a top five, top 10 team in the country and really compete for, for national titles on an annual basis? I think it certainly should be in the short term. Baylor, I think, has kind of hit that level over the last four or five years. It's sort of where KU was, where the Jayhawks went below a two seed for like eight straight NCAA tournaments. The Bears had, they played the 2020 NCAA tournament. I feel pretty confident would have been a one seed. They won 23 straight big 12 games, which is still the record for most consecutive games won by a big 12 team. You look at teams that have won or earned number one NCAA seeds three years in a row. Only eight universities have ever achieved that feat, which includes Gonzaga, which is active in that streak. So it's a very high benchmark to hit. Keontae George is a top 10 recruit, probably going to be a top 10 pick in the next NBA draft. Trey Johnson just visited Baylor. If there's not an early NBA entry, whether that's the 24 draft or the 25 draft, he looks like he's got a shot to come to Baylor. So I think Baylor's reloaded well. The challenge, if you get to that level, is do you have a year where maybe you dip like Kentucky does sometimes? North Carolina had a few years like that under Roy that were a little lean. But if you're winning you know, multiple national championships, you can put up with having a year where you're a 7 <laughs> or an 8 seed. And then if you're as good as Carolina is like they were last year, you can be pretty mediocre all season and then just say, we got five really good dudes. Let's see what they can do. And if not for an entry to Armando Baycott, I think they probably beat KU in the title game. Yeah, definitely. And George is one of the players we wanted to 
to talk about. Of course, he's not the first high-profile five-star to come into this Baylor team. You had one in Kendall Brown last season. But I feel like George is just a different breed because of his, and he's a very different player because he's so gifted at scoring the basketball, which is not, you know, Kendall Brown, it was the raw athleticism, the defensive ability, the athletic ability. What, and there's so many, Josh and I were talking before you hopped on about that. It almost seems like there's this unanimous thought that Keontae George is going to be the best freshman in the country. What do you think it is fair to expect out of him and kind of what have you learned following this team about what this might look like when he actually takes the floor? My normal heuristic is don't ever rely upon freshmen. Uh, Perry Jones was an elite recruit for Baylor, had a good freshman season. Scott Drew at the end of that season would even say, you know, the guy averaged more points at Baylor than he did in his high school league. And a lot of people felt like his disappointing season, but that said, we gave the caveat, uh, to give the final North Carolina analogy, the ceiling is the roof for Keontae George. No skill is more important in college basketball than the ability to get your own shot. Keontae George can do that in spades. Baylor played in a basketball tournament with some other universities this summer where they didn't have the success they wanted, but Adam Flagler and LJ Cryer didn't play in it. But Keontae George was the star of that tournament. His ability to create his own shot. He's gotten his body a little bit leaner this summer working with Baylor's training staff, attending Chris Paul's camp. I would be shocked if he's not the Big 12 freshman of the year and if he's not the Big 12 player of the year, it will be because either Mike Miles at TCU earns the award or Adam Flagler steps up and naps it himself. Assuming George is the player that he seems to be putting himself in a position to be, do you think that – do LJ Cryer and Adam Flagler – what I'm getting at is I think Baylor has a chance to have the best – backcourt in the country and depending on who you ask right now they'll tell you that they think Baylor has the best backcourt in the country if you get the Adam Flagler and LJ Cryer at least the healthy versions of, versions of them last year and you get basically those same players again this year and you add Keontae George to that is that the best backcourt in the country or do you think there's a step that those other two guys those returning players need to take for that to to really be the case I think it is. I would hear arguments within the Overton window for North Carolina with R.J. Davis and Caleb Love back. And if you count Leaky Black as a backcourt guy as well, obviously a supreme defender. And then Houston with Marcus Sasser coming back and some elite recruiting. I think the Cougars have an argument too. But it's not just those three guys. And those are great guys to mention, Josh. It's Langston Love, who was a high four-star recruit, had to miss all of last season with an ACL injury. And then Dale Bonner played 30-plus minutes at the end of the season, a lot for Baylor, an elite defender. And this kid, uh, Daunton Grimes, who came in as a junior college player, is a heck of a lot Baylor, better than Baylor thought they were. And so last year was kind of Baylor wasn't really as recession-proof as they hope with a couple of the injuries. I think the backcourt for Baylor is so deep there that even if, let's say, a, you know, a, what we don't want to have happen occurs and Adam Flagler goes down or LJ goes down, you feel like one of those guys can step up and then you're just saying, all right, Keontae, your usage rate's now going to go up 5% compared to where it was. And you feel like it's a little bit more plug-and-play, whereas I'd be a little bit more worried if I were Carolina and if, R.J. Davis goes down. I don't know that North Carolina has somebody that can step in and you feel like he's 90% of R.J. Davis or 90% of Caleb Love. And you mentioned Langston Love, and that was something else I wanted to touch on, is you're bringing a bunch back in the backcourt. You just listed some of those names. Of course, you're hoping Langston Love stays healthy this season and he can make an impact. You've got both bigs returning, obviously not at the very beginning with Chama Chachua, but in theory, you've got Flo Thamba there, and hopefully you get Chama Chachua back at some point. There are also these other players that you're bringing into the equation 
Langston Love because of his unavail- unavailability last season, but also Jalen Bridges, Caleb Lohner via the transfer portal. What do you feel like there's such an established group already, and this team was so good last season with many of these returners playing key roles. What do you sort of expect to see, and has anything stood out to you about these other new pieces that are going to be factors into the equation this season? Yep, I think two things stand out to me, Josh. The first is positional flexibility. 21 Baylor ended the uh, year a lot with four guards playing when it was Adam Flagler, Jared Butler, Macy Oteague, Davion Mitchell. Then if they wanted to play Mark Vidal at the five to close games or Jonathan Chamba-Jachua, they could do that. This season, Baylor can easily go four guards with all the collection of talent we talked about, or Jalen Bridges, I think, can close games, and Caleb Lohner can even play some small ball five. The second thing, though, is I don't even know how to pronounce the guy's last name still, uh, but it's Josh O. And I was talking to LJ Cryer <laughs> last month, and I was like, LJ, how do you pronounce this guy's last name? And LJ was like, man, I don't even know still. But everybody I talk to, whether GAs, LJ, assistant coaches, they all tell me Josh O is way better than they thought right away. He played basketball in Africa, comes over to America. Uh, they just say his athleticism's off the charts. I was told by an assistant recently he can even shoot a little bit, put the ball on the floor. Elite defense where you can guard one through five at a level that is not pronounced by anybody else besides Jonathan Chamwachachua. So I think Josh O is kind of the guy to watch if you're looking at Baylor and watching a game maybe with Baylor against Gonzaga and saying, who in the world is this guy from Baylor and how do they keep getting these dudes from Africa that can just defend five positions every single season? Another guy they're ready to plug and play, and it sounds like a really good dude as well. If I got a couple of questions here, and they kind of all come into the same idea of, of what do we think Baylor's ceiling is this year? Um, the first one I ask you, kind of the first part is, are you are you worried at, at all about the like was it just a super unlucky collection of health in one season? Are you are you worried that it might carry over to the next year um, in terms of reoccurring injuries? Um, I guess we'll start with there and then I'll kind of go to the second point uh, that kind of is wrapped into this to this expectation for for this version of, of Baylor. Yep, uh, all have been very good questions. That's probably one of the big worries about Baylor is LJ Cryer has injuries to both feet, has some pretty serious surgeries on them. And so are those injuries he's just going to battle all season. So can the Bears really expect LJ to stay healthy all year? If they can, shot 45% from three last season. I think they'll have even better spacing this year with their full panoply of talent than they would last year. So that's great. But whether he can stay healthy, I think it's a fair question. I think for Adam, a little bit less of a question. The knee bothered him, but he played almost all of last season. And I don't think the injury was nearly as structural as LJ's uh, two injuries to his feet were. So I think that is a fair concern for Baylor about how the health holds up on that front. And the second part of kind of that, uh, 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 the second sub question is, what is what's your biggest area of concern for for this team that if they get that right, you have a, a hard time believing they're not one of the you know seven best teams in the country. I think it's defensively, uh, Baylor's offense. If Baylor doesn't have a top five offense, it, it means three guys just stop playing basketball. That's like how good this offense should be all year. But defensively. <laughs> Baylor's wings were very underrated last season on that front. Kendall Brown uh, could get beat uh, on back cuts, but was a really good point of attack defender. Matthew Meyer, by Evan Miyakawa's analytics system, uh, ranked him as one of the two best defenders in the country during last season, the best defender in the Big 12. And so without the wing defenders, then Jeremy Sohan could play small ball five, obviously was a top, I think, seven pick in the NBA draft last season. Will Jalen Bridges and Caleb Lohner step up as wing defenders and then James Akenjo is probably underrated as a point of the attack defender. So with Jonathan Chamwachachua out, Lothan was a good defender, but the defense could take a step back. And if you're 
let's say the number two offense, the number 28 defense, uh, you know, is that a recipe to win a national title? I think it's fair to wonder. Hopefully the defense can have a little bit higher ranking than that, but that might be where they end up, but hopefully not. Building off of that for a second, I think that's a fascinating point and something that doesn't necessarily get enough attention is both, you know, these last two teams were built on, and you kind of alluded to this, that defensive versatility, whether it was Mark Vidal or a guy like Jeremy Sohan last season, is there a, and especially with Tom Chachwa at least missing an extended period, is there somebody you feel like if it ends up being four guards that is going to be kind of that versatile defender that can guard one through five or one through four that allows Baylor to play those four guards and not feel like you're sacrificing anything defensively? Because I feel like that's been kind of the secret is they're able to match up defensively. And then when you have four perimeter players that are as gifted as what Baylor's going to throw out there, it's impossible to guard when they're when they have the ball. That's a real concern, I think. The two guys you wonder about are Keontae George, because he's a little bit thicker, even with the body work he's done. And then Langston Love, because he's 6'4", and also a little bit of a thicker guy. Baylor relied upon Macy Otiga was 6'4", a lot during that championship season. So those are the two guys to watch for. But kind of as you mentioned there, Josh, you're talking about a true freshman and somebody who missed all of last season, so virtually a true freshman, having to step up defensively. So that does make me a little bit nervous, but... Uh, they're not going to be nearly as bad defensively as Iowa. And at some level, that four-guard lineup might just say, what if Iowa's <laughs> offense was even better? You didn't have to rely upon Luca Garza to defend people who know how to run, you know, a sub-540. <laughs> so where do you think uh, – let's kind of move into – kind of bring Baylor into the conversation of of everybody else in the conference. So we'll start – we can start at the top. Um, I think, you know, kind of – I think we can all agree that it's certainly – not a stretch to involve Baylor in the tippity top of this conference. Um, and Kansas like normal is, is probably going to be there. Um, alongside those two teams and maybe you just, maybe you don't think Kansas is going to be there and you can certainly lay that out if you, if you don't, but um, along with those two teams, um, are you expecting anybody to kind of be in the conversation at the very top of the conference or is it, are we going to look up, you know, with three days left in, in January and those two teams have kind of already uh, separated themselves from the rest of the conference. Uh, it's a good point. I guess I'll start with, I think KU is a bit overrated to start the year. I think KU is closer to team 15 nationally than a top five team nationally. So I think Jalen Wilson is good, but it's a lot to ask to go from you were Kansas's third best wing to now you are the guy that a lot of people think is going to be Kansas's best player this season. Christian Brown, sure. Ochai Abaji, obviously were relied upon a lot. And then at the end of the season, Remy Martin got to play a lot more in the tournament, seemed to take over and stretches for KU. With those guys gone, I don't think Jalen Wilson's going to handle the ball all the time, but you kind of wonder about him. And then Bobby Pettiford probably has to be a pretty big point guard for KU, whether they'll go two point guards with him. I wouldn't feel real confident if DeWan Harris is my point guard. One of KU's least successful seasons recently was when Marcus Garrett, an exceptional defender, had to handle the rock because there's just not a lot of three-point shooting when you have that defensive first point guard. Obviously, that leads to KU getting 30-piece by USC in the NCAA tournament. So I'm a little bit lower on KU. Ceiling could be pretty high with Brady Dick as an elite freshman that Baylor certainly wanted in recruiting. Zach Clements looked pretty good as a big man in his few minutes last season. But I'm a little bit lower on KU. I think if there's a team that's getting some hype that I still believe in myself, it's TCU. Good season last year. Mike Miles decides to return. Almost all their core rotation pieces are back. Eddie Lampkin probably going to work on his body even more and was a dominant force in the campaign. So TCU, I think, could sneak up and scare people. But one of those deals where if you're called a sleeper by enough people, 
aren't we all awake about them eventually? <laughs> I think that's fair to wonder about them. And then there'll be the reverberation of Texas was so overrated last season. Have we now underrated them this year with them adding Tyrese Hunter uh, to their roster and then Marcus Carr coming back? Maybe I'm open to that, but still a lot of turnover in Austin. I just don't know if I buy it. And, you know, at some level, I just respect Mark Adams a lot that I don't know that I want to pick Texas. So I think there's a case for Texas, but on principle, I refuse to make it. (laughs) Do you, are you kind of approaching this? You just laid out some of the other teams that are kind of in that tier two, I think for most people, do you see this as a two team race between Baylor and Kansas, at least to start the season? Or do you feel like this is, or do you feel like it's, one team specifically Baylor and then everybody else, or do you feel like we're going to get to, you know, February, the final weeks of the season, and there are going to be three, four or five teams that actually still feel like they have a chance to win this thing and mathematically haven't been eliminated from contention yet in terms of the very top of the conference. I think healthy Baylor on paper is by far the best team in the league. I think if Baylor suffers an injury, so let's say LJ goes down, then I think Baylor's right there with KU potentially TCU for sure. So I think if Baylor is healthy, I think Baylor will win the league by multiple games. I think Baylor will lose at Allen Fieldhouse, and I think they should be favored in every other game. I think, though, if LJ goes down or if you want to bet on one injury, then I think it becomes a three-team race with KU, Baylor, TCU. I'm unwilling to say Texas. And I I just don't ever know what to think with Texas Tech since Mark Adams is going to bring in eight new dudes a year. I don't know. Will they all gel? Will they all not gel? It feels like one of these years they're just not going to make the tournament, and then another year it'll be like, oh, yeah, these three dudes hit. And now this team's 36 and two heading into the NCAA tournament. So tech every year is like, I don't want to predict this team. I will not bet on this team, but I refuse to also hedge and bet against this team. If, if you could describe a a little bit, your hesitations with, with Texas kind of uh, expand on that just a little bit. I think us, uh, us here kind of know what you're getting at, but if you could expand for, for those who might be listening and aren't completely aware of kind of the Chris Beard era of Texas so far. Sure. So my concern with Texas is they were so hyped to enter last season. They had all these transfers. And even at Big 12 Media Days, I asked Chris Beard, you know, you got a lot of guys that think they're going to play 35 minutes a night. What the heck's going to happen to you? And he kind of scoffed at the question. He was like, you know, we always play eight guys and they know who they are because the order sets itself up. Well, there were rumors last season about was Marcus Carr unhappy. Maybe those were just rumors. He came back to Texas this year. There were rumors about other guys not being happy. So I think whether the culture at Texas is where they want to be is a very fair question. A lot of turnover with the assistant coaches. Uh, They thought they were going to land Keontae George, went to Baylor, not Texas. So I just want to see it from Texas. I think Chris Beard's a very good season-based coach. But I also think if we want to get a little hot take-ish, it's fair to wonder if he kind of caught lightning in a bottle with Jarrett Culver being an unbelievable recruit relative to expectations and that Mark Adams sort of popularized the no-middle defense once again at exactly the right moment. And if that combination worked out real well, and look, Chris Beard's still a top 20 coach in the sport, but if you're a top 20 coach and you got to go against Scott Drew, Phil Self, and Jamie Dixon in a season where he's got it rolling, and Mark Adams, who's going to use more duct tape uh, than one of those weird kids who goes to prom in a duct tape dress, <laughs> uh, what are you going to do? And so, I don't know. I just refuse to buy into Texas until I see it. I have that rule in football. I have that rule in basketball. It's a great academic school. Austin's a fun town but I just got to see it from Texas before I'm going to buy their back. You've mentioned some of the specifically Texas tech falls into this category, but I feel like the the big 12 is interesting this season in the sense that you have some teams that are heavily reliant on continuity and guys coming back, whether that's, you know, TCU Baylor to a certain extent, of course, there are new pieces as well. 
there are some teams that are are getting, and you know, Texas is also bringing an awful lot back. And then there are these other teams, whether it's te- you know Texas Tech, you can go down the list. Kansas is bringing in an awful lot of new pieces. There are a bunch of teams who are kind of retooling on the fly here. How important do you feel like that continuity is going to be in the Big Twelve this season? And do you think it's going to be a deciding factor between an example a TCU and a Kansas who from a roster building standpoint are kind of approaching this very differently just considering what Kansas had to replace from last season and everything TCU just got to turn back over and make another run at it I think the continuity is very helpful and I think you know if you got Bill Self true serum my guess is he would tell you he'd rather coach TCU's roster this season than his roster though you get a couple beers from Jamie Dixon he'd probably tell you oh my god I'd love to coach the athletes KU has and have a chance to lead a roster like that so who knows on that front but I certainly would rather have the continuity of TCU. By the time Big 12 play rolls around, KU will probably have dropped a couple of games where you're like, oh my God, how do they lose this game? And they'll find a way to sneak out a win against Baylor that you'll just be like, you know, how does this happen? Bell Self every year finds a way to win a game or two that he just has no business winning and only he can win. So I would still rather have the continuity outside of Mark Adams because I'll always trust Mark Adams with just a new roster every season. But those other newer teams, Iowa State, uh, you know, they did very well uh, last season. Uh, with the new roster, I thought they were clearly the worst team in the league, and they make the NCAA tournament, win a game in the tournament. So that's great for them. But I still wonder, a lot of new pieces this year, and you don't have a Tyrese Hunter caliber player coming in, though they've landed a five-star for the next class. And then K-State, I think uh, Jerome Tang will really get it going in Manhattan in 2024. Uh, but I don't expect K-State to be good this year. And, you know, play this clip, Jerome Tang, if you uh, want to say I'm a moron when you all make the NCAA tournament, but I would not expect a good year in Manhattan. I think football is more there sport this season in basketball on, on that on that topic real quick um what did you what, what kind of what kind of coaches is Kansas State getting in in Jerome Tang and how how much did you get to interact with him during the course of your book I'm just curious as a guy who um clearly has spent quite a bit of time around the program yep so I think Jerome Tang will be an excellent coach there already recruiting vastly better than Bruce Weber ever did in Manhattan landing multiple high four-star players already getting some good transfers. So I think long-term will be a very great coach. He's been going to activities all throughout campus, really gotten engaged with campus life, which I think will give him some leeway if they're not very good this season. Uh, but I just don't think they have the guys this season, right? Everybody says you got to have the dudes, right? It doesn't sure. matter if Bill Self's coaching. K-State doesn't matter who's coaching them. I don't think that backcourt is very good. Uh, I don't think they have kind of a winning team this season with the talent they have. So I'd be surprised if K-State won more than three Big 12 games. I think they're looking at like a 2-16 and 16 Big 12 season. But I think Tang – Year two and three, he's an energetic guy. He's a deeply caring guy. He's a smart guy. He looks for different advantages, and he's not afraid to change things up quickly. He wanted to be a Power 5 coach for a long time. This was a long time coming for him. He absolutely deserved it. He's a great guy. But I don't think anybody's winning year one in Manhattan. Put, put me on a video. Put me on Twitter. Old takes expose me because I'm saying it now. K-State is not winning five Big 12 games. If they do it, I will write an apology letter to Marquise Noel. I will write Jerome Tang an apology letter. I will go to Manhattan myself and buy out Aggieville for the night. They'll always lend you money in America to do it. Uh, I just don't see it. Can, and this is this is something I've been talking about, and we've had this conversation on the podcast multiple times. Of But I understand Jerome Tang wasn't going to leave for any job because, quite frankly, he was just above that at the point where he was getting real consideration for head coaching jobs. Do you have any explanation as to why it took a program of – you know, a, right, a high major program, a program of Kansas State's caliber to actually land him. It just, it blew my mind that after 
what he and Scott Drew inherited and what they built that somebody wouldn't look at the primary assistant and go, you know what? It might be a good idea to hire that guy for our program. (laughs) It's one of those shocking things. It felt like for a very long time, a lot of schools were reluctant to say lead assistant can get a good job or even a power five job. Tommy Lloyd's success last season at Arizona, I think is really what unlocked it because it said, Hey, Gonzaga has been really good for a long time. Why not just give Tommy Lloyd a shot that Arizona becomes a dominant team last season? And I think you looked at Baylor and Jeff Goodman did a list a few years back where he said, who's the top assistant in each conference? Tang won overwhelmingly for the Big 12, was the architect along with Al Brooks at Baylor's defense turning around uh, during the 2020 and then 2021 campaign. So it was dumb. Athletic directors make a lot of dumb moves. I would guess if you have to spend half your life calling rich people to not make them mad when they've done stupid stuff, you'd probably get a little... Uh, crazy yourself so maybe that explains it but yeah America's athletic directors have a lot to answer for and that will be on the list someday is there is there even like one percent in the back of your brain that's a little like I'm curious hesitant about Baylor post Jerome Tang is there any of that for you yeah I think that's very fair uh Jerome Tang at Baylor was willing to wear whatever kind of hat he had to wear I talked to somebody one time was like you know is Tang kind of a bad cop and multiple people have agreed with me since then and that he was the guy who would get after people. He was the guy that if somebody wasn't working hard, he'd kind of, you know, poke you and be like, hey, you're doing this, you're doing that, get after mm-hmm. you, that kind of thing. And so somebody else has to sort of fill, fulfill that role for Baylor. And that's going to be unique for him. Now, when they mentioned that Jerome Tang was a bad cop, they were like, you know, our bad cop doesn't cuss. Our bad cop doesn't really get after you that much. And our bad cop will cry with you uh, if you're having a bad day. But that's a role for somebody else to have. And so when I talked about the staff with somebody recently, they said, they're still kind of learning what roles they all have to have. So I think it's fair to wonder if Baylor is bad or goes through a bad stretch. Yeah, the bottom could really fall out for him without Tang there. But I think if Baylor's good, it's a lot easier to manage things, right? If things are good, you don't really have to wonder about, oh, who's getting mad at us. But I think if Baylor takes a bad loss and compounds that with a bad loss, where Tang might normally be able to walk in and just be like, this is unacceptable. I can't believe it. You're letting down your whole family. Well, that's not really <laughs> Scott Drew's MO. That hasn't really right. been John Jacobs or Al Brooks' MO. Somebody else will have to do that, but you make the kind of money these men are making. I think you can convince yourself to be a little passive aggressive to the fellas. <laughs> and we also wanted to touch on sort of the future of this conference. And, and from a Baylor perspective, you know, teams are coming in 2023, Oklahoma and Texas are going to leave. What is it kind of been like sort of being in big 12 country as this has all happened? And what do you feel like, you know, this is going to be the theoretically the last season of, the big 12 looking like we've sort of come to know it for decades almost at this point, of course, there's been some, some movement here or there, but there are these staples. And now all of a sudden, you know, Cincinnati and BYU are coming in and then you're going to say goodbye to Texas and Oklahoma. Just what has this been like? And what do you feel like, is there going to be some sort of underlining underlying storyline here this season about this being the last time the big 12 looks like this? I think in basketball, the big 12 is in a lot, more stable footing uh, by Ken Palm's rankings. The big 12 actually gets better dropping Texas and Oklahoma and adding Houston, BYU, uh, Cincinnati, and then UCF doesn't really count, but you know, <laughs> if you add them as well, they still are better. Uh, so mm-hmm. I think there Baylor's in a good spot. I think if the big 12 can add four pack 12 schools, there's still some rumors about, you know, well the big 10 ultimately add whether it's Cal, Washington, Stanford, uh, and Oregon, to get that late night TV window for an Amazon package. And then if that happens, I think the four corner schools come to the big 12. And then I, I feel bad for Oregon state and Washington state, but uh, you know, somebody was going to get betrayed in this whole organization. I think Baylor's in an okay spot. 
uh, because NIL money seems to flow to brands and Baylor's kind of become a brand where they're okay getting guys there. I think the sport's also going to have to undergo a pretty big restructuring once all the one-and-done guys start going pro. I don't know how John Calipari is going to coach differently, but you'd feel pretty confident for Baylor that they were landing the five-star guys at the early part of the last decade with Perry Jones and Quincy Miller, Isaiah Austin. That recruiting pipeline kind of dries up. Uh, there are some on the Baylor side that will say uh, they didn't have the ability to drop the bags and some of these schools would drop. I'm not saying that, and I'm not naming names for anybody from Baylor who would say that. Uh, but they might say, hey, it was interesting how all of a sudden the same seven schools got all these guys. I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody. I'm not accusing anybody. I'm just saying an interesting concept to consider. Uh, so I think the concern you might have, though, in realignment is if the Big Ten and the SEC have this much money, are they going to decide to pay their football coach $90 million a season? Texas A&M probably will. They're already giving, you know, Jimbo $95 million to not win games. <laughs> but will other schools want to do that? I don't think so. What I think will ultimately happen is they'll pay the players because if you really want to be dominant in the SEC and the Big Ten, it doesn't make sense to just pay your football coach $40 million more a year than the Big 12 could. It makes sense to spread that money out and say, why come to Baylor and play football when you can come to Wisconsin and get $400,000 a year? So I'd be a little bit worried about does that – revenue then go to basketball i'm also just worried about the health of the sport because greed always seems to win out in this will they just decide the ncaa tournament is the 68 best power five plus 10 schools which would be the power five plus 10 schools uh that's my concern for the health of the sport but i think baylor's in a no case spot because keontae george is at baylor because of outside money not because baylor was able to give him a lot of money themselves and because of the brand baylor's ability to put guys in the nba so i think the baylor brand will still be strong going forward but I think football-wise, it is fair to wonder what the heck's going to happen to the Big 12 and the SEC and the Big 10 are making ungodly sums of money because I don't understand why CBS and NBC are paying for Indiana Rutgers. But, you know, by God, maybe I don't understand what New Jersey versus Indiana means for America. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've spent my entire life in Big 10 country, and I don't even know what Big 10 country is at this point because, you know, it's the entire 48 states. So it's C to shining C. That's right. <laughs> Los well, Angeles versus College Park, Maryland. Absolutely. <laughs> it doesn't get much better than that. Well, Kendall, thank you so much for taking the time. Really enjoyed it. And we'll be following you and Baylor this season. Thanks so much. Yep. Appreciate it, fellas. Thanks. Thank you so much, Kendall, for taking the time to come chat. Baylor Bears with us. Um, delivered in every single way. Absolutely. Yeah. Really good conversation. It was nice to sort of get a, a we of course talked a lot of Baylor and we wanted to have somebody Baylor on because they are the top team in this conference heading into the season. Mm -hmm. We both feel that way. There are certainly a, a high level of intrigue about what you do sort of following up last season and of course then following the year before that when you win the national championship. Right. And also being able to get that wider, you know, all conference context that's always our goal with these interviews to sort of set the stage for the entire conference and Kendall did a terrific job of that as well so thank you Kendall for taking the time that's all we've got for the pod today we'll be back next week and we're just rolling through conference previews please subscribe to the Jays for Days podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts you can check out uh, all of our podcasts uh, in bits and pieces uh, as well as full recordings on our YouTube channel just type in Jays for Days podcast in the YouTube search bar, and you'll find us there as well. Follow us on Twitter at Jays for Days Pod. If I didn't say that one already, thank you so much for listening to this edition of the Jays for Days podcast. I'm Josh, he's Josh, and we will see you later.